start. There's a worksheet on the back for the men if you are interested in attending the new site workday on October 31st. For more information, see Sam Bond or ask one of the pastors. <clears throat> First Samuel chapter 7 this evening, one man's influence. Uh, that's the center of our attention this evening. We know as believers we love to worship the Lord, but I don't know that a lot of believers understand that worship involves more than just holding one's hands up and praising the Lord and adoring Him. Uh, there's the pursuit of obedience. There is enduring hardship. Blessed are those who endure. Uh, there is, of course, unity with the brethren with the, in fellowship. There are several things that make up worship, no single thing. Truth and love, of course, in the new, from the New Testament standpoint. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, that's an act of worship. Obedience is an act of worship. Telling God that he is there and you know it, and that you not only need him, but you want him. And not only that you want him, but you want to do something for him. And this is, I think, uh, packed into this chapter. So we look at verse 1. Then the men of kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of Yahweh and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of Yahweh. Well, remember from the previous chapters, the Jews had lost the ark to the Philistines in battle, the battle at Aphek, and and, of course, it ended up traveling around the cities of the Philistines before God restored it to the people. And it appears that for 20 years, um, Sam, Samuel's off the scene. We don't hear of him until we come to this chapter here. This verse probably fits better in chapter 6, but it still has its purpose here. For setting the tone for worship, because that's what the ark was all about. The presence of God and in the presence of God. You know, take the sandals off your feet, the ground you stand upon is holy. This that, that worship, the presence of the Lord. Now, it's taken uh, to Kirjath-Jerim, which is about eight miles from Ramah. Now, Ramah is where Samuel lived all the days of his life. It was in Shiloh, which is 20 years from where Samuel lived. 20 years, 20 miles from, that's a long country road, uh, 20 miles from where Samuel lived. And so now it's closer to his home. I think that stands out in the story to me because I believe he's got very much to do with where that ark ends up. The fact that uh, Eleazar is not killed being a caretaker for the ark uh, signals that he is a Levite. That ark, the center of worship. What about the tabernacle at Shiloh with the altar and the laver? I mean, where, what happened to the incense altar may have been largely damaged by the Philistines when they lost the ark in, in battle. Uh, but now the ark is restored. And the tabernacle, tabernacle worship is paused. It is uh, inactive. 
And I think one thing that comes out of that is we see that this, uh, there's a separation between the ark and the tabernacle. Ritual worship is, uh, again, paused, suspended, while God works through the man Samuel to influence the people to get them right again, to get them on track as a people. Yeah, there were individuals that were devout. Always there's a remnant. Ritual is... An expression of obedience, but it is not a substitute for obedience. And this is what Samuel is going to inject into the culture. And, and again, Samuel is the man that wasn't supposed to be. His mother, Hannah, prayed so hard for him. It seems, you know, as you look at the story, there are bigger things involved. But just looking at the story, she could not have a child. And she goes to the God and she has this man. And this man influences kings. We'll talk about that. Because largely, this seventh chapter is an introduction to the ministry of Samuel. We've already met the man, uh, the boy, the young, the young lad, and, and, and the young man. Now we're meeting him in full public ministry. In verse 2, so it was, the ark remained in Kirjath jerem a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. Now, a lot of the things in the Bible aren't exact. You know, where is this 20-year period? Where does it come from? I believe it's from the time the ark was restored to the Jews till now, when Samuel is coming forward, and that's how I'm going to approach it. The ark would remain here in Abinadab's house, for another oh, 60 or more years. That's a long time. Because you have to fact, it stays there until David brings it to Jerusalem. So you factor 40 years under the leadership of Saul, the years leading up to his leadership, then David, the time he comes in, the 20 years uh, from Aphex battle. So you've, you've got quite a bit of time that it's going to rest there before he brings it in. And so maybe we can understand when we get to it that David is dancing before the ark with all of his might. He's not just doing this you know, soft shoe dance. He is just throwing it out there. It's, just, it's athletic because of his passion for God. Not letting it get out of control. And you take six paces and they stop and they worship. And of course, we are attracted to these things. They don't dim when you get to the New Testament. We come to the New Testament, it's like, well, the Old Testament was so full of action. So was the New Testament. You just have to know what you're looking at. And you see Paul say, except for these chains, I wish you were all, you were just like me, O king. The kings in their robes and and their wives are with them and they're looking down at Paul the apostle. You almost persuade us to be Christians. Can you catch the power behind that? Here he is a prisoner of Rome and he is convicting them to come to Christ. He's not sitting there talking about or influencing them in any other direction but to come to Christ, so much so, the king says, you almost persuade us to be like you. To which he says, of course, those immortal words, I wish you were all together like me except for these chains. So yeah, don't, don't for one moment think that somehow the momentum of the Holy Spirit diminishes by the time we get to the New Testament. They just don't have as much history time. So coming back to this, Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter 6 So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Now this is later, it gets to Jerusalem. And brought it out 
of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And that, of course, is a disaster waiting to happen. But that's what's coming. That's going to down the road in the history of the Jews. And so for these 20 years, Sam, uh, Samuel is lost to us. This 20-year gap. What happened? Where is Samuel? He's in this wild and disobedient world, but God is working in him. Maybe Samuel was pulling at the, you know, pulling at the bit. Come on, Lord, send me in. Have me do something to restore the heritage of Israel. But he had to wait. And weight training is a part of serving the Lord. And so... Uh, from the time that Samuel first heard God speak to him. And we all know those first words Samuel first heard God say to him. Samuel, Samuel. He isolated him. He knew him. He identified him. He called him out <clears throat> to serve him. What, have, what would have happened to Israel if God did not raise a Samuel? If he didn't raise a Hannah? If he didn't have an Elkanah to marry Hannah? What would have happened There'd be no David. Who cares if there was a King Saul? There'd be no David. And David is a direct result of God's work through this man, Samuel. What does that say to me? It that I can influence. I have the power to influence in righteousness or unrighteousness. And so already his influence was working beneath the surface in the hearts of some. Going back, looking back at chapter 3, 1 Samuel. Now, the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. And there was no widespread revelation. Well, that's stopping. It's going to stop with Samuel the man. And in chapter 4, and the, word of Sam, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. That was God's word. And so looking again at verse 2, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. There's a heartfelt craving for God. At the same time, there's a stir, a stir amongst the people. They were being revived. Now Samuel's writing this more than likely. He certainly is part of the writing. And he doesn't come out and say, yeah, I did that. I stirred them up. But I believe that's what was happening. And here, because why, where else does it come from? We don't believe in magic. We don't have to believe in magic. It's not necessary to believe in magic. We believe in the power of God, the presence of God, the influence of God. On the day of Pentecost, when they heard the sound of a mighty wind and the fire that accompanied in their presence, it wasn't magic. It was God. There's no alternate power in the universe that we're interested in. In joining, except having, except that of God. So Samuel was the man God used to bring his people to crave him and to repent from idol worship and all the junk that goes with idol worship. It's not just you put a little statue there and you're worshiping the idol and there's really nothing else. No, there's a lot more that goes with it, like uh, immorality goes with it. All the commandments of, of the more, of concerning morality are flushed away in the interest of, I want to worship this God instead. You know why? He gives me permission to do things that Yahweh does not give me. There's one reason why many become apostates to Christianity. And so the spiritual climate, which David would be born into, was already being shaped through this man, Samuel. 
And if not through Samuel, who else? Well, we don't know of anyone else. We do know of him. And so before David influenced others, Samuel influenced David's generation. In verse 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for Yahweh, and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. You see where it says in verse 2, And all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. Samuel didn't say, oh, that's very nice. See, that's worship. That's all you have to do is just raise your hand and say, I praise you, Lord, I love you, and, and then you're good. No, he doesn't. He says, no, there's work to do. It's not enough to avoid the seat of the scornful. You have to delight in the law of the Lord. There's other things that make us. There's more than just gravity and sunlight and water that causes the planet to survive. Well, you know, with the whole package. It's not just one thing. It's not going to be one single thing that causes me to influence others. And we should rejoice in this. It says, with all your heart, Samuel spoke to the house of Israel, if you return to Yahweh with all your heart. Well, what should he say? If you come back with a, you know, half-hearted response, God will honor that. No, he won't. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That goes back to the days of Moses. Should it be any less? Now, we start off as Christians saying, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve God with all my heart, soul. I'm going to dance before God with all my might. I'm going to prepare for the house of God with all my might. And then life challenges you. So we're going to see about this. And all of a sudden, the rhetoric becomes war. Put away the foreign gods. In other words, in other words, because we need them, stop trusting junk. Stop making up things to believe. That's what God is saying. That's what he's saying through Samuel. Put away the, the fake stuff. Stop trusting in things that insult me. And many a professed Christian refuses to do so. Not all, thank God, not all. Joshua is working so hard to get the people to not go into what we now know as the period of Judges. Joshua 22, but take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you. To love Yahweh, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What is wrong with that? Well, it gets in the way of fun. <laughs> the flesh, the flesh says that. The spirit says, it's on. It's a fight. I'm, I'm, I'm up for this fight. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to let my flesh win all the time. Again, if you feel good about yourself, you probably don't drive much. If you feel too high about your faith, or you don't get anywhere on time. Uh, I leave a day early to get any. Okay, Joshua 24, verse 23. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to Yahweh, God of Israel. See, when you come to church, we're supposed to be inclining our heart, preparing our heart. What do you have for me, God? You don't have to like the pastor. I know you can't help it, but that's another story. But you, you don't have to. God says, did you like the pastor? No, I didn't like him. Okay, then you don't have to listen to anything he said that was right. Yeah, that would be, it would be a mess. 
It's, it's the content. He mentions Ashtoreth, the Canaanite goddess. Who cares? <laughs> it's fake. Who cares what she's supposed to be about? Well, there's some of it that does have some bearing, and it is this. She is connected with immorality. She gave the people what they wanted, the pleasures. Yeah, she's the goddess of fertility. Well, how do you get to that fertility? Well, you indulge yourself. And then there was Baal. He was the god that provided the rain and the, the necessary things for life. We'll come back to him in a minute. But he says, put away Ashtoreth, that, that Canaanite goddess, and, you see, there it is again. It's not enough just to put away the idolatry. It's not enough to fix one thing when there are many problems. And so we must not only say no to wrong, we must say yes to right. That's why we come to the house of God. And not isolate ourselves and bury our talent. You know, Jesus did not pronounce a great blessing on the ones that buried their talent. He actually came on them pretty hard. He, you would, he would have had a lot of critics in church that day. Did you hear what that mean pastor said? He's just telling you the truth. So, again, prepare your hearts for the Lord, he says to them. Well, the first step in preparing your heart for the Lord is serving him only, no other gods. There's no surrender to him. Without that, there's no preparation. There's no getting ready for God. And as Christians, we're always supposed to be prepared. This lesson must be shared. So, Boy Scouts for his rule, right? Because God can do anything does not mean he'll do everything. And it is up to us to fulfill our responsibilities and to do them with zeal and the confidence that it is going to please him and is going to be a blessing. And so these people were to take a deep look into themselves in the presence of Yahweh. It would be pointless to say, I'm going to examine myself in the presence of Ashtoreth. That would have been not only pointless, that would have been damning of the soul. Verse 4, So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served only Yahweh. Well, again, these gods represented provisions, necessities for life in the thoughts and the heads of the people. They were non-existent. They were creations of demons, and God told the Jews that this was the case with them. And so the Lord is not interested in them. The things that we need to survive and prosper, yes, we need that, but these are forgeries. These aren't gods. John says this in his third letter. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. Well, what's the opposite of that? Well, I hope you suffer and <laughs> sick. Well, of course, that'd be hellish. So he says, I want you to do well. Not this junk prosperity teaching, you know, just God becomes some sort of a cosmic bellhop. He just runs off to get you what you want. That's not prosperity. Prosperity is to have what you need to survive, yes, and more, as God gives. And then he says this, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Well, how does the soul prosper? In Christ's likeness, that's how the soul prospers. And without that, without that feature, there's no prosperity. And how does, what is the Christ's likeness? Well, sacrifice out of love, based on truth. Take those two away, you got, what do you got? You got nothing. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. I mean, you got to like this guy. He says, Get the people together. 
He's talking about all the tribes. He's going to bring unity and obedience into the, into the front line of, of the nation's life. Gather all Israel to Mizpah. He chooses the spot. He's a man of prayer, and he's also a man of answered prayer. That's significant, is it not? And he makes this distinction between Yahweh and anything else somebody else might believe. And so he says, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. Not Ashtoreth, not Baal, Yahweh. He is God. Now, he saw that the wages of sin is death when he was growing up in the temple and Hophni and Phinehas were around him. He saw that junk. He learned what bad ministry was all about by having to endure it. And so he takes two major steps to heal the nation from centuries of fragmentation. Oh, we come across that. You come across a life that has been spent in debauchery and then we preach the gospel to them and God starts to rebuild. He restores. He makes things a lot different. So obedience to Yahweh, because there was flagrant disobedience. Carefree. And that, that carefree attitude towards obedience dammed up the flow of blessings. It, it stopped them. And so they were oppressed by the Philistines. And the Philistines are going to make a move on them in this chapter. They had to stop tolerating and sheltering idolatry. Not only the the toleration of idolatry had to go, but sheltering the ideas and thoughts that came with it. To this day, we Christians have to guard against sheltering things that are offensive to God as clearly laid out in Scripture. I mean, you cannot excuse somebody for stealing, you know, to to go buy themselves something nice. Tribal unity was the next step. Isolation. The tribes were isolated. Even the clans were isolated largely. To a fault. And that enabled the idolatry. The uh, the enemy has armies. And armies are not isolated. Not if they're going to be victorious. And uh, he is telling the people, we have got to be one nation under God, indivisible. That used to be a pledge of allegiance in this country to the flag. and It's been outlawed in the minds of many. There's a lot of wisdom to it, but there's more so here. And so he's trying to centralize the nation under God. This was his solution, and it was right because it came from God. And God would take three steps to pull this off or to bring the nation into her golden age. So when Solomon ascends the throne, they're in the golden age, literally. Silver was like, what is that? So Samuel would begin to take them back to the basics of what? The law. The law of God. The Christian has to go back to the basics. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not the basics of Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount is a wake-up call. It's an alarm clock. That continues to ring in the background at the very least. But there's more to Christianity that we get through the precepts and the teachings. Samuel began to take them back to the law of Moses. And he would be used to give them a king of their choosing to shut them up. <laughs> they were the one that said, yeah, God, not enough that God's our king. We want a real king. 
just like the other nations. That, to me, was the, the worst part of it. When the church looks to the world, how's the world doing it? Let's find out how to be a church from the world. It's like, well, you, why not from the book of Acts? Why not from the Corinthian letter? And there's a lot to learn about how to be a church and how not to be a church. Just from the scripture. Just from the New Testament. Well, Samuel was going to give the nation a king also after the one of their choosing, the one of God's choosing. The one that God would speak to. Of course, I'm talking the difference between Saul and David. And this would issue in about 200 years of the Golden Age. Now, notice he does not act presumptuously and say, I will pray for you and God will do what I pray. He doesn't promise them anything. I'm going to pray to Yahweh. What Yahweh will do after that, well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Verse 6, So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before Yahweh. And they fasted that day. And said there, we have sinned against Yahweh, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, this is uh, not every single person in the nation, of course. For sure, it's the tribal leaders and heads of clans. They are most certainly there, because they're the ones that will spread the influence. to Whatever they receive from Samuel will spread from them. And so, by assembling the people... And calling them to repentance, he's acting as the leader of the nation, as a judge. Now, Samuel, Samuel's not a priest. He is a judge, and he is a prophet, and he oversees the priest. Because he's got that much influence from God, without violating the priesthood. Which is critical, because he is a Levite. But he is... He gives the word, we're going to go here and we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to sacrifice. And the priests are going to carry out the ritual, but it's on Samuel's word. And we remember that God put him there. What would happen if he wasn't there? Well, we know what would happen. We look back to the previous two books back to the book of Judges and we find out that they didn't have anything like this. And so this pouring out of the water seems to express a heartfelt, genuine repentance. That just the sorrow of their hearts poured out before the Lord. The burnt offerings, or the, whole, the, the holocaust, the whole burnt offering, the entire thing was consumed. You did not eat any of it. And this was an, uh, it indicated dedication to God. This is all yours, God. All of it I'm giving to you. And so this is a solemn ceremonial act that uh, points to their sincerity. But also there's more. To their purification, which includes separation. It's not a, I mean, if you're going to be purified, water being, of course, an emblem of purification, they're going to have to separate from the fake gods and the gods of the peoples. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Well, now, this is not all happening on the same day. There's a lot. I mean, people are traveling at the speed of cart or foot or donkey and not even tall donkeys. So, some, you know, this is spread out. And it takes a while to not only to amass an army, but to have the provisions to feed the army. And not only do you have to feed an army, you've got to water them. And so there's some time here. But the Philistines are alarmed that the Jews have gathered. They see this as, you know, hey, they're going to get together and they're going to, they're going to come against our, our interests. We're not going to let this public gathering go forward. 
In verse 8, so the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So they're not ready, they're not willing to go to battle to engage the enemy unless this man of God is praying for them. That just flies off the page. We're, we're going to fight the Philistines. We're not going to just disband. We are going to fight them. But we, we need you to pray for us. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to God for us. It is, again, not magic. It is what we do as Christians. We are commanded to pray. Men ought always pray, Jesus said, and not lose heart. Luke chapter 18. It is encouraging when people go to the house of the Lord and go to the pastors and say, pray for this, please. I mean, I don't mean minutia, you know, just because you, know, you can just stack the prayer list with stuff that is really not under our sphere of responsibility to the point you burn us out. And so we, we try to control it a little bit and keep it, keep it close to heart because we can't be praying. It's too much. It's just too much. It's overwhelming. So you have to manage it a little bit. And, and this is what is happening. This is, uh, they're not asking for, they're asking for a, a direct need that affects all of them right now. And I'm, I'm sure Samuel must have said, he must have been very grateful that the people were coming to him and saying, pray for us. This is in contrast to that debacle at Aphex where they lost the ark. We read of none of these things. We read of, you know, the, the two fool priests, Hophni and Phinehas, you know, taking the ark to the battlefield as a mascot. We're not getting that here. They're not even bringing the ark. The Israelites are no longer depending on the ark of God to be this magical mascot. They're depending on God directly, and they're going to a man of God to appeal to God. They wanted to depend solely on Yahweh as their God through prayer, the invisible God. That's key, because all of the other the peoples, they had, their, their gods weren't visible. They had a little statue. You could say, this is what my God looks like. And the Jew would say, Yahweh's invisible. We don't know what he looks like. We don't need to know what he looks like. We know what he can do. Ask the Egyptians. And so the Philistines, who were always on the offensive against the Jews at this time, ruling over them, now the Jews are going to end up on the offensive, and, and they're going to be the upper hand, uh, the bottom rail on top. In verse 9, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. Then Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. Well, there's the whole burnt offering I referenced earlier. I'm not going to go back into Samuel is not a priest, though he's a prophet, and that gives him, in these days, a lot of leeway with God, as we see Elijah on Mount Carmel much later. But he cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. Again, now the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Well, here it is. Yahweh answered him. This is the revelation. Things are changing in Israel's history. This is the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. This is why James could say these things. And, of course, Samuel's not the only precedence in Scripture for him to say that. Samuel himself was born out of fervent prayer. Everybody knows Hannah prayed fervently, except Eli. <laughs> Eli thought, again, at first, he thought he was, she was drunk. 
but she was fervent. And so he was a man of prayer, and that means he's a man in dialogue with God. It's not just one speaking, they're both speaking, to each, they're speaking to each other. Verse 7, I'm going to pause, well, sorry, we're up to verse 10. God has made clear in Scripture what he thinks about Samuel long after Samuel died and went home. We'll come to those verses in a little bit. Verse 10, now as Samuel was, Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. There's a parallel here. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. What was the burnt offering? It was a suckling. It was a lamb. The parallel is, there's no victory without the Lamb. A Christian looks at this and says, the Lamb of God. There's no victory without him. Because that Lamb is also the Lion. And as the Lamb was sacrificed and offered up to heaven, the blessings began to descend upon the troops and the people, the nation. It was the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. That be us. We are with the Lord. Chosen and faithful. I know we don't, not now, we're not totally there. We're not as we will be, but we are on the road. Charles Spurgeon says this in a sermon on this topic. He says, if any good has been accomplished, it has been through the Lamb, the Lamb slain, or else the Lamb exalted. Um, you, you read those old guys, you just, you just don't crave a lot of new stuff. They just say such things that are, I would not have added, I would have gotten to as far on my own, probably, I was, the, the Lamb slain, but I would have left out the Lamb exalted, which is the key part of the whole statement. The lamb exalted. Samuel's offering because that's what the Jews are commanded to do. They know about the sacrifice. God has given them that system. But we come and we look at this verse through New Testament eyes and we see so much more. And so whatever we're going through, we endure. We don't like what God may and may not allow, but we say, you are still worth it and you are still my God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because we know that there's more beyond this life, and that's where we're going, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. The Philistines were not defeated without prayer and the righteousness of Samuel. Another lesson. These will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. The Philistines drew near to battle. They thought this was going to be an easy fight, more than likely. They're going to be so soundly beaten that they're not going to attack Israel again until Samuel's... No longer judge over Israel. This is going to be decisive. Well, they come to address this uprising. Uh, but the Lord, I'm still in verse 10. But Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. So God is demonstrating that Baal, who is thought to be the God of thunder, which is, brings the rain and the, the harvest and everything you need to live. Yahweh is saying, no, he's not. I control the weather. And the language recalls the prayer of Samuel's mother. First Samuel chapter 2. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken in pieces from heaven. He will thunder against them. 
Now, you know Samuel had to remember that because he put the prayer in the book. And in other words, he connected. He's connecting scripture. He's connecting what God has done and what God will do and what God is doing. He's connecting it. And so when we come to scripture, though we, we learn the scriptural lessons, but we're not always relieved of our problems, the scripture still scripture. It's still the God of scripture to answer to, to love and adore. God is not as upset about our suffering as we are most of the time. And yet, uh, you, the Lord certainly is mindful of the death of the righteous and our pain. Uh, at the bottom of verse 10, and so confused them that they were confused, uh, overcome before Israel. They weren't puzzled. <laughs> the thunder didn't puzzle them. Hmm, did that come from the south or the north? Uh, they were inflicted with terror. It was just that intense. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. You could just see one of the, you know, the Jewish soldiers. I can't believe we're winning. I can't believe we're winning. <laughs> we're finally winning. We're always getting whooped. Mizpah means watchtower. Beth Car, the house of the lambs. And... You can draw any connections you want to draw from that. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far Yahweh has helped us. Now this is after the battle they've won. And so he sets up a memorial to commemorate the victory. And whose pattern is he following? Well, Joshua's. We read about no less than ten monuments that Joshua set up Six of them out of stone. Even when he crosses the Jordan, they take the 12 stones out, they put the 12 stones in. Uh, this was supposed to serve the people so they would remember that their faith was built on action from God. And if they didn't believe it, that was on them. And so he's following Joshua's lead. Metaphorically, the stones have ears and voices. That's why they set, they're set up. Joshua 24, verse 27. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of Yahweh, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. And Joshua was intense. I, I would just love to see these faces on these men when they said these things, when the power of God came upon them. Well... And maybe it wasn't as dramatic as I'd like to imagine it was, but I still would like to have, but I would like to have quickly gotten back to air conditioning, indoor plumbing, and things like that. So it just would have been a little visit. Luke, Jesus tells us that the stones cry out. He says, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And of course, this metaphor is this language rich with meaning. He's saying there would be such an outrage to miss the king of kings, the God of creation, marching into Jerusalem. Somebody's got to praise him. And if it weren't somebody, the stones would do it. That's how intense it was. So Samuel says, thus far Yahweh has helped us. Eben Ezer, the Lord has helped that's the inscription. Paul said it this way in the New Testament. I find pretty much a parallel to everything. You've got, again, the 6,000 or more years of history of the Old Testament next to less than 100 years of New Testament history. And yet in that less than 100 year history, you have them go back to the Old Testament and just shine light on all of it. Light enough. 
Paul, standing before Agrippa, the same one as we said, except for these chains. He said, therefore, having, this is his testimony. This is what caused Agrippa to say, well, that's incredible, Paul. Uh, Therefore, Paul says, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. The authority of this man in front of God, I don't care what you do with me. I'm preaching what Moses taught because we have the same God. And I'm not saying anything new, but the words that stand out, the Ebenezer part of Paul's word is therefore having obtained help from God. When he was suffering shipwreck, he said, God stood by me, sent an angel to stand by me this night. John's Gospel, chapter 14, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And so, yeah, it means something to us. It's not something that belongs to Jewish people and not to Christianity. The stone of help, our rock, victory took place on the very spot, the very spot that's marked by defeat, because 20 years earlier, here they were defeated. This same battlefield. Not all the scholars agree with that, but sometimes they're, they're wrong, and that's one of them. The questioning of their location, I I don't question it. Verse verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. You know why God has martyrs? So he doesn't have only people who can stand up here and preach when everything is nice and calm. Martyrs are those who still preach as they're being bled to death. Because it's true. And because God helps them do it. And so those who preach during days of peace know, I got the same God. And if they should come to knives, I go out the same way. Not because of me, but because of him. And that's true whether a man is in a pulpit or a person is before another person or believers before unbelievers. Um, This is our faith. Well, here in verse 13 where it says the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel and the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So they stayed out of the Jewish neighborhoods so long as Samuel judged Israel. And he judged Israel up until Saul becomes king. And then, of course, the Philistines say, well, new sheriff in town, let's try him. And they found out that Saul was so obsessed with persecuting a righteous man who was just maniacal, that he forgot all about, well, he just dismissed the Philistines. He didn't care. He'd rather kill David than protect the nation from the Philistines. And as a result, the Philistines killed Saul and his sons. You go to Mount, you go look at Mount Gilboa and it stands there like, like you know, just out in the open. It's unmistakable. That's where Saul died. Well, the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel, or rather upon them. He kept them in check. No more incursions from them. Verse 14. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Everybody got in line now. It's all Samsonic. Samuel's leading the people, not Samson. And everybody just lined up uh, on their side of the town and left the Jewish people alone. 
So the tribes and clans, or the clans within the tribes that lost territory to the Philistines, were now resettling that, their territory. This must have been a huge battle, and, and Samuel opts to just not put it in. He doesn't put in like in 400,000 of them died or something like that. He just, we won. And it was so decisive, we took cities back, and they left us alone. And the other people who weren't part of the Philistines, they left us alone too. <laughs> so they saw the beat down. So this must have been uh, pretty intense, verse 15. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. No retirement for this. He retired in ministry, not from ministry. What a man. Saul, he, uh, when he comes, he's going to be the anti-Samuel. <laughs> Everything Samuel was, he's not going to be. He will... The shelter, paganism, and idolatry and immorality, if it suits his purpose, but nothing like Samuel. Verse 16, he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And he held court. He solved the heavy cases of the land. Now, he is shepherding the flock. He's an itinerant preacher. He's traveling around. And one of the good things about an itinerant is he can repeat himself. No one ever says, oh, I heard that sermon. Because they didn't hear that sermon. And this is why when we come to the New Testament, and Mark will give an account sometimes of something Jesus said, and Luke will give another account, and they're different. Not sometimes they're just omissions of points, but other times it's because he gave the same sermon in a different town. He gave it with a, with a twist. And nothing wrong, no corruption there whatsoever. Uh, if you preach in the same pulpit all the time, you kind of you you see that right away. <laughs> he got to preach in other places. He could repeat his his old jokes or like new things. Where is this place? So it's called being a guest speaker. You can use all your old material, and they're just yucking it up. And you're going, hope nobody from the old land is <laughs> from the old countries here. Anyway, uh, let's go verse seventeen. Oh, well, look at that. We're almost done. I think I should stop and sing you a short song I wrote on the way in. <laughs> Take the mic. It's not str- I want to point one thing out about the preaching since we're on it. Do you know why a pulpit is a good idea from God? Who wants to see a pastor strut while he preaches? Stay behind the shield. Anyway, verse 17. I mean, I see a pastor, you know, and he's like, whoa, 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 don't do it. Get back. We're not interested if your pants are pleated or not. Just don't. Anyway, <laughs> verse 17. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. So I think, you know, Samuel, again, the author of this, maybe he's reciting it. It's, certainly others have come in and made, have edited it. Because you couldn't say he lived in Rama till he died. Samuel could not have written that. Uh, so there is, that's fair, that's fine. But this is a very touching, uh, realistic touch to the whole story. But he always returned to Rama. He always went home where Elkanah and Hannah had lived, and Panina, <laughs> the girl from Panina. Anyway, 
<laughs> so he always returned to Rama for his home was there. He's a, he's a human. He's, he's like us. There's no place like home. He'd go out, he'd minister, come back home. No place like home. And then he said, yeah, but I got to go. I got to preach. And he goes out and he does. Not only did he preach, he influenced. And men, you could see young men come to Samuel and learn from him. We pick up that later on in chapter 9, I think it is. But there he judged Israel. And there he built an altar. So his headquarters is there where he's now influencing the, the men, of course. They were the, the forefront of the nation. First Samuel chapter 9. This is, I just, I just said chapter 9. <sighs> So many verses. <laughs> Here is when Saul is looking for his father's donkeys with his servant, his father's servant, and Saul is looking. And the servant knows about Samuel. Saul does not, because Saul is just so into himself. Uh, he, if, if, <laughs> if Saul could look at us now, you know the biggest thing he would envy more than anything about us? Is you can take selfies. He was such a selfish individual. All he, he lived for himself. I can't wait to get to Saul to just hate on him. No, I don't. I don't like the guy. I, I, I wouldn't. And let's come back to this. So, look now. There is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. And all that he says... Surely comes to pass, so let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. And of course, Samuel does that. He's talking about Samuel. He's an honorable man. Outside of church and Christian circles, and maybe military circles, even there it's diminishing. When's the last time you heard the word honor or honorable? Does that word, I mean, certainly doesn't come up in any news media. I mean, none of it. Well, it's just a word we should, we should grab hold of. There he built an altar to Yahweh. Now, let me pause. Honorable, I don't mean in the sense of looking down at others as being less than us. It's, I mean as looking up for something better uh, for me personally as an individual to aspire to, to be honorable. If I don't get there, I'll get, be a lot better off just trying. There he built an altar to Yahweh. Further evidence that Shiloh had been uh, destroyed back in chapter 2 by the Philistines when they won that day and told, stole the ark. Um, we're not told why uh, he doesn't join the altar to the tabernacle. That's just left out. Uh, the tabernacle's probably at Nob, what's left of it. Um, anyway, those, those things are just aren't important. They must have had a good reason. He's such an honorable man, such a great figure. Uh, this, um, this man was spoken so highly of God. What we do know is that God approved of him even after he died, is his record. Jeremiah writes, oh, oh, 600 years maybe later, God speaking through Jeremiah. And we know Jeremiah, God spoke through him because Jeremiah. Jeremiah would say, you know what, you're going to die in two months. You were dead in two months. It was just not, and there's a list of guys he would put a hit on <laughs> just because they messed with Yahweh and, and, and they lost. And he's just a fierce prophet in that regard. Then Yahweh said to me, Jeremiah speaking, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. These are the people of God. We should never feel like, you know, we're so good, we're so hot stuff that we can't offend God. 
uh, the, the Jews were offending him. And Jeremiah says, the first two people God put on my heart to tell you as models of prayer and, and favor with God, Moses and Samuel. And then Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon Yahweh, and he answered them. Now, I'll go tomorrow, I'll be talking to God about some pressing need, saying, You answered them? Why can't you answer me? So this altar, we'll close with this. It should take 20 minutes. <laughs> the altar expresses belief in God. I believe in God. That is what the altar symbolized throughout the land. Even if you were a pagan, that's what it symbolized. So that's pretty alarming. You mean a pagan can have an altar that claims he believes in God? Okay, so that's not good enough because he's still a pagan. He believes in a fake God, a forgery. So, it's not enough to believe in God. Even, you know, the devil believes in God and remains the devil. The altar expresses the need for God. Not only do I believe he's there, because there are many people that will tell you, I believe in a God, but they think they're self-made men. That's a joke. Because they have nothing except what God has allowed them to have. Again, God can always just pinch the airline. That's all it takes. Uh, the altar expressed a desire for God. Now it's getting, this is the Jewish altar. Now it's, it's intensifying. So, okay, I believe in God. I need God. Yeah, but do you want him? Do you want him in your life? Or do you feel like, you know what? God's creeping me out. Because every time I do something, I can't forget he's there. And that's part of the process. And the altar of the Jew, when done right, spoke of submission to God. So not only do I believe in him, not only do I need him because I'm a sinner, and I have he's telling me there's mercy for me, that's the whole system of sacrifice. Not only do I want him, but I'm ready to surrender to him. I'm, I'm ready to want him without trying to lord over him. And so the words of an old saint, my heart, an altar, and your love the flame. The altar is a big deal. There he built an altar to, to Yahweh. To, here it says to the Lord Adonai, but it's Yahweh. There he built an altar to the Lord. That's a very powerful ending. Let's, let's pray. Now, Father, it is uh, very encouraging to read the historical record with faith. And it's probably quite depressing to be exposed to these honorable characters throughout Scripture and have no faith. Whatever faith we have, it's because your fingerprints are on it. And we thank you for it. We thank you for your participation in in our lives, no matter what's going on. Uh, may we all get home safely this, e this evening.